Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. We have a very special show today. I have with me in the studio Kathleen Buckingham. She is the research manager for the Global Restoration Initiative in WRI, and Sabin Ray is a research analyst with the Global Restoration Initiative. And joining us online, we have Satrio Wikasono in Indonesia, where he's the forest and landscape restoration manager, and also Ruchika Singh, the Associate Director of Sustainable Landscapes and Restoration in WRI India. Wow. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. Great to be here. Same here. Yeah, happy to be here. The reason that we have brought together so many voices spanning the world is because WRI has published, I think, one of our most exciting uh, publications in a long time, Mapping Social Landscapes, a Guide to Identifying the Network Priorities and Values of Restoration Actors. And if you're a listener who doesn't normally follow up and look at the publication online, I urge you to download this PDF and look at it because it is full of wonderful visual examples of what it looks like to map a social network. And the the descriptions you're going to hear today about why to map a social network and how it will can be used is going to help you to understand the technique, but you won't understand the, the depth and complexity and really the beauty of what these maps look like until you look at the publication. Kathleen, why should somebody do social network analysis? Well, if you want to understand the actors in the landscape, it's really important to think about the relationships, to think about the flows, the connectivity. For example, in restoration, we need to know where the seeds are coming from. Um, you need to know the information flows and the relationships um, amongst actors. I think it's so interesting applying this to restoration because... My understanding is one of the first things you do when you're thinking about restoring a landscape, bringing trees and shrubs back to a landscape that may have been degraded or maybe totally cleared, is that you map the land. And so we're all accustomed to thinking about, okay, we've mapped this restoration opportunity. This is the nature of the rainfall. These are the plants that are currently there. These are the plants that might get introduced. But the kind of map you're talking about is a map not of the land, but of the people. Is that right? I think you're right. What The first thing that you do is you make a landscapes opportunities map. You're looking at the biophysical landscape and you're looking at the connectivity in the land. And I think this is really important to recognize it's not just about looking at the environment and looking at the biophysical landscape. You have to think about the people in that landscape. So that's why we framed it as mapping social landscapes. It's not just looking at social network analysis, it's also looking at those communities and thinking about their priorities and their values in the land. Sabin, one of the things that struck me looking at this is the variety of the data sources. Yeah, so most of our data was actually collected in a workshop format. So that means we are bringing together stakeholders who belong to the landscape. So farmers, government officials, uh, investors, they would all be in the same room working together to try to talk through what was the connection, how was information flowing, how were financial resources flowing. So that was our main source of data, was this workshop setting, which is really unusual to get these people all in the same room together. We also looked at some social network maps online, 
looking at Twitter and trying to understand who is governing the social media landscape as well. One of the things that's unusual about this guidebook, and it's a credit to both of you, is the degree to which you were able to connect with colleagues in our international offices. Those who know WI well will know that um, more than half of our staff are actually working in the big emerging market countries where the challenges of sustainability are most acute and where the battle will be won or lost. And uh, sometimes we have research that is mostly done here with occasional citations. In your case, you work closely with people in, I see, Africa, India, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil. Am I leaving anything out? Yeah, we have six. So we have six case studies. We have Brazil, Rwanda, Mexico, India, Indonesia, and Kenya in total. I want to go now to uh, Satrio Wikasono in Indonesia. Um, Satrio, can you tell us about the case study that you were involved in? What was the nature of the problem that you were trying to solve? Sure. So we're looking at water issues, water pollution in Lake Toba. So Lake Toba on the island of Sumatra is the largest volcanic lake in the world. And it's been polluted partly because there has been a lot of unmanaged um, aquaculture um, in, in the area, in the lake itself. So people have been grappling with this problem for a long time, for decades. There are so many actors involved in this issue. So we want to ask, you know, who actually influences the water quality management of Lake Toba? And this is an important question because the government wants to change Lake Toba into a primary tourism destination in Indonesia to attract a lot of foreign tourists coming to the area. So we want to be able to solve the water management issue, the water pollution issue in Lake Toba, and hence we need social landscapes to understand who the actors that are involved so that we can identify which can provide opportunities to, um, to solve the problem, to see you know, collaboration that might occur to solve the issues. And how did you apply social landscape analysis in this particular situation? What did you do? Hmm. So as Sabine was saying, we were able to conduct a several rounds of workshop actually. And it's quite interesting because the workshop is interactive. It is attended by you know, many different stakeholders from NGOs, um, members of the academia, um, the government. And so people who are not normally in one room, they were able to engage with one another because of the nature of social network analysis. It's, it's quite interactive. Um, it's sort of like triggering discussions by the, the participants in a new fashion. So, so, so this new approach was interesting to them. It's like a, a game actually for them. So, so it, people were able to talk freely to discuss really the issues at hand. And as you're conducting this workshop, is I haven't seen one. Is somebody drawing uh, diagrams, uh, maps, saying, I think I hear from you that these people are over here and they know this and these people are over there and they don't know that or they, these people have money and these people don't. Are you, are you creating a visual representation of what you're hearing? Correct, actually. So we use you know, a lot of charts. You know, people were able to draw, you know, trying to first off sort of like write down their institutions, um, and then other people's institutions and trying to make connections, you know, seeing, you know, what kind of information is flowing 
from one dot to another. So, so it was quite interesting to see. It can get a bit uh, complex at times, but we were able to talk it out, and then people were able to see, you know, what their role um, actually is um, in managing uh, water in in Lake Toba, and and we were able to get some good insights also from the whole process, not just from the drawing itself, but also by discussing the problem, you know, out loud. So one last question. Um, I wonder if you learned something from the social landscape analysis that surprised the participants themselves. I imagine you learned things as outsiders who are trying to be helpful. Were there things where the participants said, oh, we didn't know this. We're surprised to see this. Or they were like, yeah, yeah, you got the map right. We knew this all along. Hmm. So, so what really struck a lot of people, I thought, was that NGOs non-governmental organizations actually play a significant role in shaping water protection agenda um, in Lake Toba. And a lot of people did not quite understand this because like oftentimes, you know, they just focus on, you know, what the governments can do. But NGOs, they tend to be highly connected to other stakeholders, to the media, to the government, uh, to those... Um, doing advocacy and so on and so and they're connected to actors not just at the sub-national level but also at the national level and hence um, their role is actually uh, pretty big and we need to empower them more actually giving them more authority actually uh, more um, power so that they can uh, play a more significant role in um, in, in doing public education um, and advocacy of Lake Toba water quality management. I imagine the NGOs were very happy with that finding. Definitely. <laughs> um, from Indonesia, I want to pivot now and go to uh, Ruchika Singh uh, in India. Ruchika, tell us about the work that you did in a particularly remote and poor part of India. Thanks, Lawrence. Um, so we've been working in uh, Siri, which is a remote district in central Indian highlands, and it fares poorly in most development indicators. Uh, just to give you a bit of a sense of that, we the Siri district has about 90% of population is uh, dependent on fuel wood and forest for sustenance. Uh, it's also been ranked highly climate vulnerable by a recent GIZ Ministry of Environment, Forest and Climate Change report. And uh, we were doing uh, restoration opportunity assessments in this uh, remote area and with the objective of delineating, you know, what are the opportunities for implementing different tree-based interventions at scale and to see what is the potential for enhancing rural livelihoods, especially for women and the marginalized sections. One of the focus areas that we've been also we focusing on is thinking about what sort of provisioning and regulatory services could be achieved uh, from different restoration interventions that are planned. And we realized that you know within the restoration opportunity assessment methodology, um, the governance concerns are not uh, clearly delineated. And this was something. This is how the initial conversation started. And what we realized in CD when we started uh, working, the problem that we were addressing was how if we have to implement and scale landscape restoration in the district, then uh, you know who are the key actors, nodes, and champions that we need to think of uh, 
to implement the restoration plans that would be, would be developed. And did you also organize workshop-like settings? So we did, um, we did the workshop in the district headquarters in CD, and we had a room full of people from different uh, government organizations, uh, you know, the local uh, district administration, Zilla Panchaya, the Water Resource Department. We had uh, um, people from different local NGOs, really small ones. We had some farmer representatives. We also had uh, one of the, you know, ex-legislative uh, assembly members present. And the room was, uh, interestingly, it was a room which was full of men. So I was, the, I mean, as a facilitator, I was the only woman who was uh, leading the entire work. But there was a sense of comfort in terms of, uh, you know, given the Indian setting and uh, in this remote district, but there was a sense of comfort in terms of getting the conversation started. And that's how we kind of went about it. That's, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm just, the fact that it was all men, aren't you missing half of the information if there were no women in the room? Yes, we are, and we realized that as well. So one of the things that we did was, in fact, we did a series of uh, stakeholder network analysis workshops. Uh, in the first workshop that we did, we were also mis missing the forest department, who, are, who is a very key stakeholder when we think about any restoration opportunity assessment that may be given that comes out of CD district. So we did another round of uh, discussion, only, you know, we set up another uh, workshop only with the forest department officials. And we, there it was quite, in the, the dynamics was different. So we had, uh, you know, some of the range officers were women as well. And, but we realized that we couldn't stop there. So one of the other things that we eventually did was we also did additional uh, focus group discussions only with women to get their sense of what, uh, you know, the social network uh, looks like. So we I see. So incorporate the gender component. I see. So it's an iterative process. If you realize you're missing important information, you go back and do it again or do it in a different setting. Is that right? Yes. And yes. what was the big aha moment? What was, I'm sure you learned a lot of different things. What's the thing, the one thing that stands out as being the thing that surprised you or the other participants that will help you to advance the restoration agenda in this poor remote part of India? So for us and also for the, you know, the participants in the room, one of the things that jumped out was that the CD district network size, you know, uh, in the first go looked large, but it lacked diversity of actors. We had the key, you know, the core of the network were dense with different government agencies and, uh, you know, you had the Jilla Panchayat, you had the uh, rural development officials, but we realized that there wasn't diversity in terms of different NGOs or the, the non-governmental organizations who could implement and scale landscape restoration in the district. There was also lack of different research institutions and financial players who could also, you know, implement, uh, aid in implementing landscape restoration in the district. So the network looked large, but on closer examination, it was not as diverse as it might have been, and some people who might have been helpful to the process were excluded or at least were not included. Is that it? Yes, and we also realized was that if we have to think about implementing uh, the and scaling landscape restoration in the district, one would have to work across scales and it bring some of the, you know, uh, 
some of these actors who are in the periphery. Uh, for instance, that the state which CD is in Madhya Pradesh, it has, you know, there is tremendous amount of knowledge and there's tremendous work that's happening which the civil society organizations are doing in the state. But it's only this particular district which doesn't have some of these bigger organizations. Thanks very much. Kathleen, this is new to me. Um, people can tell I'm excited about it. Um, I'd like to get a sense. I mean, obviously, some other people are doing this, but I feel as if you have really advanced the field with this. Tell us what's new here within the field of social network analysis. I think to some degree it's putting the elements together. Like you said, social network analysis itself is not new. I mean, it's it's very advanced in fields like health, um, na national security. Um, but thinking about development and how we can apply this in the field, I think it's the fact that it's a guidebook. It's a step-by-step -step guidebook. We built upon the work of Eva Schiffer, who created NetMap, which is doing social network analysis in a workshop setting. But I think what we bring here is a step-by-step -step guide. We're analyzing the science of social network analysis, making it accessible so you can look at the actors and think about who are the change champions, who are the gatekeepers, who are the central actors. And we're trying to think about what is a strategy for change? It's one thing to say, okay, now we know that the, there's some peripheral actors, there's some central actors, there's some gatekeepers, but what do we do now? So we want to have a step-by-step -step guide how to analyze and how to create a strategy for change. Um, this particular volume focuses on landscape restoration, bringing trees and shrubs back to uh, degraded landscapes. Uh, WRI works on seven urgent issues, food, forests, water, energy, cities, climate, and the ocean. Do you see this technique being applicable in those other issue areas? Yes, definitely. I think this is just the first step. We have some key issues in restoration that we wanted to address, like where are the seeds coming from? Where is the information coming from? Where is the finance coming from? So we approached it from that viewpoint, but it definitely is very important to consider what actors are important in any issue, I think, and particularly in environmental issues, to bring this tool into thinking about more than the biophysical landscape. Um, Sabin, I suspect you were involved in the coordination with various international offices. What did you see was the biggest barrier to applying these techniques in a variety of cultural and geographic settings? Well, I think each setting has its own challenges that they're dealing with. As we heard from Satrio and Rushika, you know, this is one methodology that we've developed with feedback and support from our international offices, but it will need to be modified based on the exact local context. So this will be a work in progress, depending on how you actually want to sit down and map your landscape. Uh, well said. I think we'll leave it there. It's very much a work in progress, but very exciting work. Um, I urge the listeners who may be intrigued by this to um, download and read uh, the guidebook is available for free on wri.org. And as you read it, be thinking it's not only about how to do landscape restoration, but about whether there are other areas in which you work in which these techniques 
might be applied. Uh, I want to thank uh, Ruchika Singh. I want to thank Ruchika Singh in India and Satria Wikoksono in Indonesia for joining us at what is probably very late at night. Thank you both very much for being online with us. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lawrence. And I want to thank uh, uh, Sabine Ray and uh, Kathleen Buckingham, who is the leader of this work, for being with us in the studio. Congratulations on this guidebook. You know I'm a big fan of it. I've been touting it inside and outside the Institute. Uh, I think it's absolutely uh, terrific work. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald signing off for the World Resources Institute podcast. We're available um, online. Uh, on iTunes and in Stitcher. And I want to have a special thank you to our producer and editor, Hayden Higgins, standing by. Hayden, thanks so much. He waved. Until next time, thanks for joining us. <laughs>